Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, July the 14th, 2023. We're back to a perennial subject on the show, the Mafia. We've done lots of shows about it. Uh, recently, we did one with Paul Moses, a historian, on the true story of the immigrant cops who fought the rise of the Mafia. These are always, of course, true stories. Moses' book is called The Italian Squad. Uh, and Moses actually blurbed um, the book that we're going to do today, The Life We Choose, William, Big Billy Delia, and The Last Secrets of America's Most Powerful Mafia Family by my guest, Matt Birkbeck, who actually got to talk to the great Big Billy. Um, and he lived to not only talk about it, to, but to write a book about it. Matt uh, Birkbeck is joining us, best-selling writer from Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um Matt, tell us the story behind this book. How did you get to choose? How did you not choose? That was a Freudian error. How did you get to talk to Big Billy? Actually, Billy chose me. I was, um, it was in August of 2020, and we're in the middle of COVID, and I was sitting on my couch on a Sunday afternoon, and I got an email, and it asked if I'd be interested in talking to Bill. And I, you know, it's one of those moments where your jaw just drops because I knew who Billy was. I had covered him years earlier when I was a newspaper reporter. And um, I knew how important he was to um, organized crime, given that so many different law enforcement agencies had wanted to talk to him over the years. And he refused to speak to them. FBI, Secret Service, Homeland Security, New York Did City. You wonder Earth. why he chose you. I um... <laughs> He Well, you know, I had written a book in 2013 called The Quiet Don. And so he was familiar with my work. He was familiar with my work when I was a reporter. So, you know, we met and Billy wanted to set the record straight. You know, he had never spoken to anyone before, a media member, law enforcement. And, you know, he had seen The Irishman, the film The Irishman, which was about Russell Buffalino. Um, so Billy was the head of the Buffalino family from 1994 on. Um, but more importantly, what's really unique about this story and what's unique about Billy is that for almost 30 years before that, he had been the protege and so-called son of Russell Buffalino. And that made Billy and, and Russell was arguably the most important um, and influential organized crime figure in the nation in the 20th century. So that that made Bill, Billy just immensely important. Given Did you have uh, Matt? Did you have moral qualms about this? I mean, Leaving aside your own personal safety, did you did it occur to you that you might be glamorizing a, a man who was responsible for many crimes and, and, and a large crime syndicate? In fact, as you said, the one of the most powerful men in American uh, uh, crime. You know, as a journalist and as a reporter, and I've done this throughout my entire career because I've written books about serial killers and other very offensive people, um, you know, I'm not going to glamorize him. I'm going to report on him. So his job was to tell me his story. And my job was to write it the best that I could um, without embellishing, without glamorizing. It, it, it is what it is. You know, Billy makes no excuses about his life. 
Um, in fact, he wouldn't change a thing about it. Um, so, you know, no, I mean, the question has been asked of me, but I didn't have any, I didn't have any more. You mentioned the Irishman, um, Matt, it's a story uh, from what I can remember of a young boy who got sucked into organized crime. What was Billy's story? How did he get into it? So Billy lived in, in Pittston, Pennsylvania, which is in Northeast PA. Um, the Buffalino family uh, was based in Northeastern Pennsylvania, but Russell Buffalino had his tentacles um, stretched from coast to coast. He had been, and even beyond, he had casinos in Cuba in the 1950s. Yeah. He had gone toe-to-toe with Bobby Kennedy in the late 1950s and early 1960s in Washington. Godfather too, right? Straight out of it. He had, yep, Russell was an influential figure, as Billy explains too, firsthand uh, in the making of The Godfather. And of course, Russell was a, um, a key suspect in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So when Billy meets Russell in 1966, he's a student, he's a business student, and he's, you know, in the Army Reserves, and he had a terrible relationship with his own father, and he took a, he took a liking to Russell, and Russell took a liking to him, and that was the story. So he was 20 years old. He was a student. Does he, did he blame his own particular relationship with his father? Was his father a bully? Was he a violent man? Yeah, it is a really tough scene at the very beginning of the book, which I'm not going to tell you here. You can read it, but it just basically sets the tone for the rest of the book. Is that, um, is that one explanation? I mean, often these movies and these books present these men as being casualties of something or other. Is there some truth to that when it comes to Billy's story? In this case, yeah, in terms of a really poor relationship with his own father and the fact that he got drawn to Russell. And Russell and his wife didn't have any children. So they, for all intensive purposes, adopted Billy and took him as part of their family. I mean, to be fair, though, Matt, I mean, lots of people have abusive parents and they don't end up in the mafia. I no, I agree with you, but, you know, this isn't The Sopranos. This isn't even Goodfellas. You're talking about one of the most powerful members of organized crime in the 20th century, and that's Russell Buffalino. So you're talking about introductions to some of the most important and famous people in the country and maybe even in the world. So, you know, Billy's meeting, you know, the old football quarterback, Johnny Unitas, and he's meeting Jimmy Hoffa and he's meeting Marlon Brando and he's meeting Muhammad Ali. You know, you don't get that. You don't get that kind of access. And Billy enjoyed it. You know, who wouldn't? Did he meet Marilyn Monroe? No, that was that was before his time. He met he met many other actresses. So, so, so speaking of Buffalino and his access to powerful figures, how extensive was this network in the 60s when Billy got involved? Oh, it was incredible. It's nothing like it is today. Um, you know, when they say the mob ruled back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the mob ruled. You know, just to understand Russell, Buffalino, his power was derived from his association with the Teamsters Union. He had placed his uh, cousin, William Buffalino, with Jimmy Hoffa in the right. 1940s in Detroit. And, and William Buffalino becomes the general counsel of the Teamsters Union. And that gave Russell enormous power and influence, and so he was for the he was he was one of a kind for the most part. How bound up then? You've mentioned Hoffer a couple of times. Maybe you could say something about him. Not everyone's familiar with his story. How he fits into the the broader narrative as well as the story of Billy. So you know, we we tell Billy's story from when he you know started to his fateful ending. Um, with the Buffalino family when he was arrested in 2006. The Jimmy Hoffa case is over 50 years old, and yet people still talk, talk talk about it and are fascinated by it to this day. 
because no one really knew what happened to him. Um, and Billy clarifies a number of different things as it relates to Hoffa. He, um, you know, he tells us who ordered his, his murder. Um, and he basically gives his opinion. He says opinion. I think he knows more than that. as to what happened to him immediately after he was murdered. I think the one thing that we'll never find out regarding Hoffa, who's, who actually killed him. But how intimately was he bound up with the, with the family, with the Buffalino family? Oh, he was tied to the hip. They did. Him and Russell were very, very close. They so did. Does that imply that the, 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 the union that, the, that Hoffa controlled was essentially a, a mafia-controlled union? Yeah, that's, and that's pretty well known. I mean, there were movies made about that, you know, about Hoffa and his ties to the mob, particularly with the Detroit mob. Uh, I think what's really interesting about this book is that, you know, Russell Buffalino, despite how powerful he really he was, it wasn't much written about him. I mean, even with my book in 2013, you know, Russell's kind of a he's not a forgotten character. He's more of a misunderstood character. So when you read this book, you really get an appreciation for just how powerful and influential that he really was. And the, the, the core business of the Buffalino business was was gambling, prostitution, alcohol. Uh, yeah, he owned dress factories um, in North. Well, those East. aren't illegal dress factories, are they? Well, basically, yeah. But when you get <laughs> when you Billy ex- explained it, when you get the material from your customers and then you steal some of that material afterwards and you make your own dresses and sell them, yeah, that's you know, that's that's a little bit off. Also, jewelry, um, but also Russell was you know he was known as the mob's negotiator. I asked Billy if Russell was ever a member of the commission. And he said, no, he wasn't a member of the commission. He was above the commission. So basically, whenever there was any turbulence within organized crime circles, um, they would go to Russell. So you talk about the commission. That's the the meta-level families operating syndicated crime in, in America? Yeah, th- those are the five top chieftains who basically will resolve any disputes that might arise within organized crime. So for Russell to be above the commission basically suggests um, that whenever there was uh, an issue of real importance of, you know, huge magnitude, they would go to Russell um, for his blessing. And in in terms of the, the, the criminality of these groups, was it murder, violence, um, bribery? What, 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 how did these organizations work? Yeah, I mean, it was was a number of things. I mean, you know, the mob was, you know, they were tough. They were violent in the 50s and 60s. You know, if you said no, they would ask you once. And if you said no, they'd push you out of their way, any means at their disposal. Billy did not want to talk a lot about violence because he wasn't a really violent guy. I mean, I'm sure there are examples in the book uh, of Billy and some violence Billy was more of a negotiator. When Russell went to prison in the 1980s, Billy basically took his place as the head of the family, the de facto head. And it was Billy, but it wasn't just with organized crime. What was really interesting is that we're talking about being called in to settle disputes within entertainment, within sports, within American business. You know, Billy, Billy did business with Donald Trump. You know, there's a number of scenes in the book with Billy and Trump, um, and one in particular that involves Michael Jackson that, you know, Billy intervened in, and he actually became the co-manager of Michael Jackson in 1988. So it's a testament to uh, the power and influence of Billy during that time. That's astonishing. So what you're suggesting is that these guys operated a kind of rival state. 
the one thing I learned doing this book, you know, as a reporter, I always thought it was black and white with a little gray area. I interviewed Billy for well over a year and a half, two years. I still talked to him. I just spoke to him yesterday. And what I learned talking to Bill is there's a lot of gray and that people like Billy populate that area. And they are called in to help settle issues and arguments and disputes and contracts and all kinds of things. And it's not just organized crime. It's politics, entertainment, sports, anything. Um, when they need something resolved and they have to do it under the table, these are the people that they come to. What I don't understand, though, and maybe this goes back to the Godfather and Michael Corleone, is, is why couldn't Billy have just set up his own law firm and done it that way? Uh, he, I mean, because he's working under the, you know, uh, Buffalino family under Russell. I mean, why would you want to, you know, go your own way? Plus, he was devoted to Russell. I mean, just extremely, even to this day, devoted to Russell. As if how, Russell- how, how much did he break? Actually, break the law. I mean, he, he reminds me of the character, the the, um, the conciliary in in The Godfather. Um, it, it was never in, entirely clear how much this guy actually broke the law. He. Billy wasn't arrested. He avoided being arrested until 2006. And when he was arrested, there was a raid on his house with about 20 different law enforcement agencies, federal, state, and local, and even a military helicopter flying above. Um, He was arrested on on a drug money laundering charge for attempting to kill a witness. You know, these were serious crimes. He ultimately pled out, I believe it was the um, money laundering charge. Um, and he spent four years in prison. So he is a convicted felon. So, you know, and like I said, he didn't make any excuses for the life he led. Um, he acknowledged the work that he did and the life that he lived. And, um, you know, as far as why he wasn't arrested beforehand, the police, law enforcement tried for many, many years to, to file charges against him. And they just couldn't do it. Tell me a little bit more about this Trump Jackson case. How, how did it work? Who called who in? How did Billy get involved? So, so Donald Trump in 1988 uh, wanted Michael Jackson to play one of his casinos in Atlantic City. Only Jackson's manager, Frank DeLeo, said no, that Jackson doesn't play casinos. So Trump decides he's going to enlist two mob heavyweights from the West Coast, offer them a million dollars, and have them uh, get to the manager and convince him that Jackson will play the casinos. So when they reached out to Frank DeLeo, the manager... He reached out to some friends he had in Pittsburgh, and they knew Billy. And so they reached out to Bill, and there was a big meeting in New York in 1988 during the Grammys. And Billy's there, and when these two um, mob chieftains show up, they see Bill, and they know Billy, and they knew the gig was up. And so they offer Billy half the Trump million dollars. Billy says no. They leave. Frank DeLeo, the manager, is thrilled. Only Billy says to him, this isn't over yet. I'm your partner. And for the next year or two, he was Michael Jackson's co-manager. And he even toured with Michael um, that year on the Bad Tour. Uh, there's a photograph in the book. And uh, spent a lot of time with Michael, both on tour and at his ranch in California. So are you suggesting that Donald Trump was involved with the mafia and he was paying them millions of dollars to essentially force Michael Jackson to, pay his, to play his casinos? There are many scenes in the book that involved uh, Donald Trump back in the 1980s and even in 1990s when Billy became the actual head of the Buffalino family. There were two instances there in Atlantic City where they were, him and Trump were going to do business together, only Billy refused to pay Trump the amount of money that he wanted. It involved 
one deal involved phone cards, another one in, involved uh, timeshares and buying thousands of copies of Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, um, which would have cost Billy well over $100,000. And Bill said no to both. But he knew, he knew Trump very well. How come Billy went to jail but not Trump? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a million-dollar question. Uh, that's that a billion dollar, not a million, Matt. <laughs> you got a point. Um, that one's out of my league. I can, I can only talk to or test to Billy. <laughs> well, I mean, why, why wouldn't the FBI go after Trump? If this um, is public knowledge. I mean, it clearly is now. It's in your book. Well, today it, it is. It sounds like a lot worse than fixing elections or trying to fix elections. Uh, you know, there had been, you know, there over the years, you know, Trump had been, there have been articles and suggestions that Trump did business with the mob before. Um, that's no secret. I think this is the first time that Trump's ever been directly connected to the actual head of a mob family and, you know, demanding to get paid in person by the, you know, let's say in this case by Billy. You know, Trump wanted cash. He wanted, to, he wanted it to delivered directly to him by Billy in Atlantic City. Um, I had never heard anything like that before involving Trump. But again, we're talking about the 1980s and the 1990s, so it was long ago. So um, there's really nothing I don't think going forward would be able to do with something like that. So when you, you had all these conversations with Billy, um, would you meet? How would it take place? So we did all the interviews in Russell Buffalino's old home in Kingston, Pennsylvania. Russell's wife, Russell died in 1994. His wife died in 2006. And they left the home to Billy's son, who happens to be named Russell. And we ended up doing all the interviews there. The house is like a museum. Uh, it's as if Russell was still there. Nothing had been changed in 50, 60 years. So it's right out of the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so we spent, you know, hours and hours uh, at that home talking for almost two years. Is there an element of nostalgia in, in, in all this? I mean, the mafia is not what it was. Um, is there a, a, maybe not through you, but certainly in Billy's mind, a sort of a glorification of the golden age of the mafia? You know, people are fascinated with the mob. You know, well, it's because you write books about it and you talk to guys like Billy. I do, but people don't have to watch the programs and they don't have to read the books. You know, they they're fascinated with this stuff. And in this case, particularly when you get a story like Billy's, that's never been heard before. You know, the book came out on Tuesday and, you know, we just got word they went to a second printing on it and it's been selling out. So, you know, it just shows the degree of interest in these kinds of stories, particularly when you have someone that's giving a first person account you know, over a period of decades, you know, someone who was there when Russell Buffalino met Marlon Brando, you know, who was the influence for, you know, Buffalino was the influence for Brando for The Godfather. And it's a chapter on that. Um, you know, Billy was there for the meetings with Jimmy Hoffa. He was there for, you know, with Roy Cohn, who happened to be Trump's lawyer, too, um, you know, and dozens of other people. So it's a really unique um, look inside the world of organized crime. And frankly, it's one that's really never been seen before. Did Billy vet the book? Did you show him it before yeah. it went to print? Yeah. I mean, we didn't really have any rules other than, you know, Billy, you need to tell me the true story. And he did, you know, over the people asked me that, did he, you know, did he lie to you or did he embellish anything? And Billy was a straight shooter. Um, 
You know, there really weren't any areas. We could go into. I'm not surprised he was. A yeah, I shouldn't. Have, I shouldn't have said it like that. Is he going to be watching this, Billy? You come on the show. Would he do a show with me? So, yeah, no, but Bill, you know, he was really, he was great um, in that he never, you know, we did, we, I had a research assistant. We do, did, we did do research. I did call people. You know, I spoke to Jimmy Hoffa's daughter, Barbara Cranzer, um, about some Whose of the- daughter was killed? Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa's How does she feel about all this, you talking to Billy? Um. Well, obviously, you know, even to this day, I mean, I think the family is just, you know, worn out with the whole thing. But even to this day, you know, they're obviously interested if they're going to get the truth. And so she listened to what I had to tell her and what Billy had to say. Um, you know, Billy clarifies the whole Frank Sheeran story that was that made up the Irishman in this book, which Billy said was fiction. And he explains why. And he also gave me documents. He gave me copies of chapters from the from Sheeran's book that Sheeran had given to Billy because Sheeran and Billy were good friends. Um, so, you know, Bill, um, Bill told his story. I felt very, very comfortable with it. I felt comfortable with what the, the truth of it. Um, there's nothing that was said that we went back to take a look at and cause us to kind of like, eh, you know, it didn't happen. And, um, you know, I thank Bill for that. Why did they kill Hoffa? Well, the reason actually is that they wanted to kill him because he wanted to resume. He wanted to regain the leadership of the Teamsters Union after he got out of prison. And it was Russell Buffalino who kept him alive because the other mob guys were um, basically um, doing well under the leadership of Frank Fitzsimmons, who took over for Hoffa. Uh, so they did not want Hoffa back. Uh, Buffalino kept him alive until... June of 1975, when Time Magazine outed Russell as being a member of these CIA mafia plots from the early 1960s, when the CIA enlisted several members of the mob to kill Fidel Castro and to do surveillance for the Bay of Pigs invasion. And uh, there was this U.S. Senate Church Committee that was uh, happening at the time. And when Russell was identified and outed, he thought he was going to be subpoenaed, as well as Hoffa, because it was Hoffa who the CIA reached out to enlist Buffalino. So believing that they were going to be subpoenaed, um, you know, I, um, and Billy and I had talked about this a bit, um, you know, Russell had to give the okay to two mob guys from New York, Tony Provenzano and Anthony Salerno to uh, kill Jimmy Hoffa. What about law enforcement? You mentioned the CIA. Um, I'm just finishing uh, a big book on J. Edgar Hoover. What, if any, were the relations between Billy and the, this organization and, and, and the U.S. government? So they had uh, locally, they would have local police, state police. They would have some federal, federal folks on the take. They had a couple of congressmen that they had in their pockets. So Which congressmen? Dan Flood, from the 1950s to the 1970s, he was a very um, influential congressman at the time, the head of the Appropriations Committee. He used to just send money, you know, tens of millions of dollars to um, Northeast PA. They also had, you know, Russell also had um, business dealings with Medico Industries, which made bombs and other armaments, which were sent over to Vietnam War. The Medicos were allegedly run by two capos of Buffalinos. Um, and so uh, they would get government contracts for this um, 
you know, arms manufacturer. So they were very influential when it came to politics and also when it came to, you know, having uh, local law enforcement in their pockets. The, the Marlon Brando character in The Godfather is a moral figure on lots of fronts. I mean, he's a good father. Um, he doesn't like the idea of his family getting involved with drugs. And the film also suggests that in some way his organization was able to protect individuals in a, in a community where there was an absence of policing. Uh, did any of this, is any of this true, Matt, in terms of w what you discovered in your conversations with, with Big Billy? Is there a, uh, I mean, there's obviously a dark side to the mafia, that goes without saying. But did they provide security and organization and a sense of community? So the flip side of the Buffalino family, aside from examples of where they may have terrorized the community, there are also a million examples on how they helped the community. Um, whether it be individuals who needed to put a new roof up, you know, someone to help with a storefront. Um, you know, and back to Marlon Brando, it was, you know, we talk about how, how Marlon Brando had met Russell Buffalino, Brando was looking for inspiration to play Don Corleone in the film, and they, everyone directed him to Russell. And Russell had a huge effect on the making of the movie before the movie was made, when there was all this turbulence with the Teamsters, and they were pushing back. Uh, and then once they resolved all of that with Russell's blessing, and the movie was being made, a number of different people that were part of the Buffalino family, as well as, as, well as the, the uh, Colombo family that were close to the Buffalinos, they were in the film. You know, and people like James Kahn, you know, Billy talks about James Kahn, who played uh, Sonny Corleone, uh, being with the Buffalinos every single day and even being with Russell in Pennsylvania. So, you know, they had this uh, very deep and close friendship throughout the entire movie. And Russell had a profound influence on that movie. Yeah, the James Kahn character, uh, Sonny, was completely out of control. I would have guessed that Billy would have been more sympathetic to Michael Corleone, wouldn't he? You know, Billy liked the movie. Um, he did tell me that Russell never saw the movie, despite um, everything he had done before and after. Um, Billy never, I mean, he didn't say who a favorite character was. He did tell me, though, I asked him, I said, what's your favorite mob movie of all time? And it wasn't The Godfather. He said it was Goodfellas. A lot of violence in Goodfellas. Well, you know, in, God, in Godfather 3, the, the family has become so well established that they're intimately bound up with the Roman Catholic Church. How successful was this organization in terms of integrating itself with um, law-abiding institutions from the church to, to labor unions to retail and, and, and industrial networks? So there are there scenes with members of the church in the book and visiting Billy's house is involving one particular newbie priest, Father Sika, who um, seems like a really good guy. But as you read the book, you'll find out he's he's got some issues. And, you know, Billy's wife, who, you know, God bless her, you know, she stuck with him through all these years. And, you know, she was very devoted to the church. And, you know, we meet certain people, certain cardinals, and they know Billy and who he is. You know, there was always this dividing line. I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know. I mean, as a Catholic, I would go to church on a Sunday, um, actually when I went to church, and people I knew that were on one end of the law and not the good end, they'd be in church every Sunday getting absolution, and, you know, they'd be getting it from the priests, and they'd be fine, and they'd be giving their money. 
and then come Monday, it's back to doing their thing again. So that's pretty much how things went, you know, with the, with the mob. Is that an excuse or does that just underline the hypocrisy of this whole thing? I mean, you can, it's pretty much hypocrisy. I mean, you can call it what you want. I mean, I always found it fascinating and even disturbing to a certain degree because you know who these, some of these people are. And I'm not talking about Billy and them. I'm just talking about others that I knew, you know, yeah. through my experience. Um, and I, I mean, I would just say to myself, even if people, other people I had reported on as a journalist and, you know, I'd see them, I'd go, man, what are they doing in church? But that's how they lived, you know? They show up, they look nice, wear nice suits, you know? get the sign of the cross and they go on their merry way. You obviously have a bit of a soft spot for Billy. Maybe he seduced you in his own way. What's the worst thing you think he did? Um, you know, Bill, he, he didn't seduce me other than, you know, I always kept my distance as a journalist and as a reporter because I had to, so I had, to, I had to write a, you know, I had to write a really good story. Um, but talk, but when you talk to someone, obviously over the course of a year or two or even three now, you know, you get to understand them. Um, you get to under the, understand their story. You may not personally believe in some of what he had done or what he had did. And that's fine. And he's, he wasn't even, he was never looking for that. We never discussed it. Um, but you know, it, I'm sure he knows it comes with the territory given who he was with and what he had done. Um, so, you know, I didn't, I never had any qualms about whether or not I'd be seduced. I'd, I'd embellish, you know, I would add to the story. I didn't, I mean, there were some tough scenes in this, in this book, you know, and I had to convince, had to convince Bill, but not necessarily convince him, but explain to him why they were important in the book. Um, and, you know, he ultimately saw what I was talking about. So you mean you had to justify the book before you, no, not just not justify, just explain to them, you know, why did I include this scene? Why did I write about, um, you know, he had an issue. He had one particular issue about being made. There's a scene with him about being made, which is actually an extraordinary scene. And I explained to him, I said, Bill, I mean, you, you became the head of the Buffalino family. You know, you're a member of organized crime. You're identified by federal authorities as being the head of this family for many, many years. So, you know, when I write a scene about you being made, um, can't look at it and go, I'm not sure I want to say that. It's out there already, you know? So, um, yeah, we just, just discussions like that, which is pretty typical when you're going back and forth with an individual. Discussions with the mafia. Was that, um, or ex-mafia at least, uh, do you really discuss? Yeah, no, we did. No, we had very, we had. We had did he we had shout this. at you? Did he threaten you? Not at all, never. No, no, we had really, no, we had good discussions. There were a couple of times, you know, look, early on, it took Bill about three, four months and it took me that long too, to get comfortable with each other. Cause we didn't know each other. I had, you know, all I knew is he was the former head of a crime family. I had my own preconceptions. He probably had some of his, you know, I went first couple of times I went into that house. I'd look behind me, just wonder if there's someone come up the stairs that, you know, I still couldn't believe that they reached out and that he wanted to talk and, and, and talk about his life. But, you know, once we felt comfortable with each other, and it was all business. You know, we get there and, you know. Well, what was the business for him? He just wants his story. I mean, he didn't get paid for it, right? No, no. But, you know, obviously he wants to get his story out. He wants to set the record straight. And he wants Why didn't he to... write a book himself? Why didn't he just hire a... You can't just write a book. I mean, you can't just go there and write down notes. It's just, you know, um, 
you know, this was this was someone like myself who's a writer and someone like him who's got a great story. Do you think they did a lot of research on you? Do you think they looked at other people and think this guy, Matt, he he's the right guy? Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure they did. Actually, they did. I mean, there are other writers out there, great writers, George Anastasia from Philadelphia, um, who I believe they may have talked to him, too, um, you know, who had retired. Uh but, you know, when I heard about it and I went to go meet them and, you know, I heard what he, he was going to talk. And I just said, look, this is what I want to do. This is my plan. I want to talk to him and I'll put the story together from there. And, you know, thankfully, he, you know, once Billy felt Billy's about I will tell you this. And, you know, it may sound somewhat stereotypical, but Billy is about loyalty as he was with Buffalino. So, you know, and trust. And I guess once he started to trust me. After four or five, six months, that's when he really started talking. And, uh, you know, I'm glad he did. Is there, finally, Matt, is there an alternative narrative to Billy? Had he not met the Buffalinos when he was a 20-year-old? Yeah. Did he have become a successful lawyer or doctor or accountant Absolutely. and led a normal life? Yep, I said that. I even told him that. I said, you know, you would have been very successful in any line of work, particularly in marketing and PR. He's very, very very charming. Um, he could tell good stories, you know, he's very, very personable. Um, you know, he's got a whole swath of friends where he lives that are very loyal to him too. He knows everybody. Um, and so they he, all know his background. They all know. I mean, look, I grew up, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn and we had guys like Billy, not at Billy's level, but we had guys like Billy on my block and around the corner and I played with their kids. They were friends of mine. My parents, I mean, my, my father was a New York City police officer. So, I mean, and he, you know, he knew them. He didn't really fraternize with them, but he knew them. We all had to live together because it was either, you know, you're a cop, you're a fireman, you're a sanitation worker, or you're a member of the mob. And, you know, that was life. That's how we grew up. And no one ever really talked about their business, you know, especially them. It was always, you know, quiet. So in the meantime, they're all, you know, they're all members of the community doing the same things everyone else is doing. It's the same thing in, with Billy and in his community. Only Billy was at a level that very, very few people ever reach. Is your father around now? No, my, my dad uh, passed away some years, many years oh, ago. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, how do you think he would feel about this book as, a, as, a, as a policeman, ex-policeman? Oh, no, he would have been through. It was my father that actually, you know, I had some doubt when I – Early on, I had some doubt about continuing my career as a journalist. And, you know, I was even thinking of being a cop. And when he saw I was serious about it, he said, nope, it's not for you. He goes, go write. And that's what I did. And I've been writing ever since. At least you didn't consider a career in the mafia. No, that's not my, my dad. No, my dad was, you know. Dad wouldn't have accepted that. But finally, in all seriousness, Matt, we live in an age of real profound scarcity of trust communities seem to be disintegrating, alienation, atomization, and so on and so forth. It's clear that the mafia is a dreadful organization, but is there anything in your book that can help us figure out a way to rebuild America in the, in the 2020s and beyond? I don't know. I don't know if there is a book that can do that right now. I mean, we're so fractured. And what poor. about trust, though? You, you've mentioned that several times. This was an organization built on trust. We don't trust each other anymore. How can these organizations help us trust one another without all the violence? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they can. I mean, A, they're not built that way. I mean, that's how they exist, you know, 
within themselves. But even to that, I mean, Billy believes in it and Russell believed in it. I don't know how far that to this today, today's organized crime members, I don't know how deeply they believe it. Are there, are there still very large families around? Not necessarily large, but it were influential. But there's the Italian uh, mafia, there's the Russian mafia, particularly in Brooklyn. So there are other crime families doing their thing. It'll never be like it was with the Italian mob of the 50s, 60s, and 70s.